0: Father, we, we thank you for all the ways that you bless us and provide for us and sustain us. And um, even as we're thinking about that, this life is still difficult uh, with the sickness and death that we have to deal with and illness. Uh, all things that are going to one day be wiped away, uh, done away with all these uh, things that are going to be eradicated when the new creation comes. And so we we long toward that day and hope toward that day. And uh, in light of that, I, Lord, we thank you for the answers to the prayers, for the healings and restorations and medical treatments and all. And uh, we also lift up Sue to you, Father. Uh, just pray that you'd bless her, give her the comfort and support she needs in the days ahead. And uh, we pray that you'd bless her and um, love her and, and help her to know um, the things that she needs to know to find the comfort and peace Um in all the ways that she needs it so father we uh, we commit our time to you we uh, give ourselves to you pray that everything we do here will be useful helpful to help us become more faithful and fruitful in the things that you call us to and uh, we ask all this for jesus great name's sake. amen all right last week y'all we left off we kind of we kind of got a little bit into chapter 15 and just by way of review and connection, we are in what's called the uh, travel narrative section of Luke. It goes from chapter 9 through chapter 18. And this is where uh, Jesus has set His face toward Jerusalem. And He's making the trip to Jerusalem where all of the you know critical turning point events are going to happen. His betrayal... His crucifixion, his resurrection, and particularly his ascension, in the larger framework of uh, Luke and Acts together. And so, as as we're working toward that, we'll make a big deal about that when we actually get there. But but this narrative that we're in now, in your outline, uh, um, at the top, we got into this way back on page uh, twenty two in your notes, and this part of the outline, I say Jesus teaches the way on the way to Jerusalem. So this is often called the, the journey narrative or the um, uh, discipleship narrative. There's a lot of different titles they give for it. But as we've looked at the last several weeks, uh, if you have a red-letter Bible, this whole section just gets redder and redder and redder the more you go into it. It, it becomes mostly Luke uh, simply recording all these different teachings that Jesus gives. And they all have to do with what it means to follow him as a disciple, to follow his way of doing things. And so last week, we uh, looked at a couple of parables that he gave uh, on uh, the great feast, the wedding feast and the great banquet as um, as for, uh, you know, kind of a foresight of the kingdom that's coming and uh, the blessedness that comes from being part of that. And then he has a, a fairly lengthy section. Well, we're really not that lengthy, but in uh, 1425 through 33, what does it mean to be a disciple and the cost of discipleship? And we looked at that. Uh, very caustic, not, well, not caustic, but hard sayings that he says here. If anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters. Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This is just amplifying things that Jesus has taught earlier. Uh, and then verse 27 he repeats something that he had said back several chapters earlier whoever does not bear his own cross cannot come after me and cannot be my disciple Um, at the at the end of this the the point jesus is making is again something that he's been laying out for him and, and developing as we go if you're going to ask the question how much is it going to cost you to follow jesus jesus answer is everything right even your own life. You can't treasure your own life and make that a priority above following Jesus. Now that's, that's pretty high, right? I mean, that's, that's a pretty hard saying. And when we saw last week, even after he, he taught that, uh, verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 1, I, I, this is just so incredible when you think about all that. He's just talked about this high cost of discipleship. It's going to cost you everything. And then verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 1, he says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, but the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Right? Now, I, I love the contrast here. Right, uh, The people who are drawing near are really those who in this culture don't have much more to lose. Right? Tax collectors, they're already on the outs. Right? Every, everybody hates them. Uh, and then the sinners as well, right? So all these things that Jesus is asking people to give up, uh, it's not really a big deal when you don't have anything to begin with, right? But if you're the Pharisees, right? Well, we got problems because um, the Pharisees love money. And they love power. And they love all these things that Jesus is going to be preaching against here in these next several chapters. And so um, the last statement there, verse 2, where he says, this man receives sinners and eats with them, that that gives Jesus the opportunity to tell uh, a couple more uh, illustrations and parables. Verses 3 through 7 and 15, he talks about the lost sheep. And we uh, looked at that very briefly last week. If a man had 100 sheep and he lost one of them, he'll leave the 99 to go find the uh, one that was lost. And when he finds it, there's great rejoicing and he comes together and calls the neighbors and friends, and they all rejoice. And they say, I found my sheep that was lost. In verse 7, this is the point. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who needed no repentance. Right? The important thing is right, the people who repent and come to Jesus. And who are they? Well, that's the sinners and the tax collectors. They're God's people too. Right, and many of these, all, right, all these, in this context, are probably Israelites. They belong to the family of Abraham. Shouldn't they be welcomed in too? Right, and so, so Jesus makes this very powerful point. He tells another parable similar uh, about a lost coin. Uh, what woman having ten silver coins? If she loses one, she'll light the lamp and sweep the whole house over till she's found it and she calls her friends and neighbors rejoicing say rejoice with me i found the coin that i lost verse 10 here we go the point again just so i tell you there is joy before the angels of god over one sinner who repents so jesus is making the point to the pharisees uh listen y'all already know what's right and wrong and you should be doing it so um why are you surprised when people who are sinners are repenting and coming right they were lost and now they're found right even heaven itself rejoices when that happens but what are y'all doing y'all are grumbling and complaining right now he's going to bring that back to a head a little bit later (laughs) in a powerful way Uh, then uh, notice the 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 thing that binds these three parables together in chapter 15 is the idea of being lost and then being found yeah, All three of them have something to do with something being lost and it being found. And um, this one in the latter half of chapter 15 is the most powerful, well-known one. Many people call it the prodigal son. Uh, the focus, though, is not so much on the son, but on the father in this parable. And so a lot of people refer to this as the loving father or the gracious father. Y'all all know this parable. Uh, let's just uh, read it and I'll say a few things about it. But y'all know what happens here. It's it's one of Jesus' greatest um, teaching stories, right, that illustrates a major issue. So verse 11, so Jesus said, uh, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, give me uh, me the share of property, or um, really interesting there in Greek, this is give me the share of life that is coming to me. Uh, The word life was often used to refer to an inheritance Or property, right? So it's the life of the father that has then become the inheritance of the sons, right? So there's a really interesting wordplay probably going on there. Uh, Give me the share of, of property, the stuff that's coming to me. And so the father divided his property between them. Now not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So notice, part of his problem is his squandering, but then other things are totally beyond his control. The famine, right? Um, verse 15, So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to, to, into his field to feed his pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. Here's a Jewish guy. He's so hungry, he's willing to eat even what the pigs are going to eat, right? Pigs are an unclean animal, right? And now he's having to work with them, right? This guy's he's gone to being, you know, a son in a fairly well-to-do family, apparently, to out taking care of the pigs and so hungry, he wishes he could eat what the pigs are eating. Verse 17, now, when he came to himself, <laughs> that's a great statement, Right? Verse 5, verse 7, right. When he came to himself, uh, that is one of the ways that Jesus is defining what repentance is here, right? When you come to yourself, when you, and the idea is when you come to your right mind, right? And so, well, what does that look like? This is what it looks like. He said, man, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger, I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Now, look at that. That is incredible. Uh, The the son, as he's coming to his right mind, he realizes, Oh, wait a minute. Father has a much better deal going on. I'll go back to him. Right? So that's one of the ways you come to your right mind, come to yourself. And then the other thing is, he says, I'm going to go back and say to Father, I've sinned, and notice the order here, I've sinned against heaven and before you you see that in other words the paramount sin is in his squandering he sinned against god himself that's what it means to sin against heaven right but he sinned before his father by taking what his father's given him and completely squandering it right so in other words he's taking advantage of both god and his father here And then verse 19, he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So as he goes back, he realizes I'm not even going to ask to be a son. I've ruined that. Instead, I just want to be a servant. That'll be enough, right? Verse 20, so he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, uh, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Notice the son doesn't get to finish his request before the father acts here. And by the way, the father running to him and kissing him and embracing him. All, all of those are things that um, weren't typically done in the first century. Uh, Men didn't run all over the place, right? And some teachers taught him that it was shameful for a man to run. You know, and public displays of affection like this were often shameful things to do. Um, and, and and by shameful I mean they weren't culturally acceptable, right? Not not the way we think of shame today. It just wasn't culturally done. Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this is my son. Here it is. He was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. One of the ways that Jesus... um, in the Gospels, and especially in John, not so much in the other Gospels. But Jesus will often talk about um, salvation and the restoration of relationship to God as one of passing out of death into life. And it's an idea that Paul takes up in all of his letters, right? You were once dead in your trespasses and sins, but God in his great mercy has made you alive, right? Uh, that's all finds its foundation in Jesus' teaching here. Uh, This son was as good as dead to the father, but now he's alive. He was lost, and now he's found. And so they begin to celebrate. Again, notice the idea of celebration in all this. The angels celebrate. Here the father uh, celebrates. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came, he drew near to the house, and he heard the music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf. Uh... Uh, In in the culture of this time, people only ate meat a couple of times a year. Uh, They were largely vegetarian because meat is very expensive, right? Uh, So the, the livestock that was cultivated was usually for the milk and the produce. But particularly in Jewish culture, they would only eat meat at the high holidays where it was required to make a sacrifice. And within the law, you could take a portion of that meat and still eat it. Passover, you know, would be a big one. where where that was allowed so this father is throwing an extravagant feast like a one time a year type thing for this son uh by by killing the fatted calf right and and they're fattening up the calf because they're waiting for a big celebration right well this is it the son was lost now he's found uh and so that's what's reported the older brother here verse 28 but he the older brother uh, was angry and refused to go in and his father came out and entreated him but he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat, uh, which that would be less than a fattened calf, right? You never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed him, uh, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to the son, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive he was lost and now is found notice he doesn't give any interpretation on this right because the interpretation is obvious what it is right this is a this is a parable that um, clearly has you know some allegorical elements to it it's meant the point to realities that are going on in the immediate context. And it's very clear that, that uh, Luke puts this parable third, because in the parable, the older brother represents the scribes and the Pharisees. right? They, they've they always been doing the things that are seemingly righteous. But then the tax collectors and the sinners, they're the ones that squandered what God has given to them. But when those people turn and come back, right? they're lost and now they're found. They're dead. Now they're alive and there should be great rejoicing. So this 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 parable highlights um, how the father responds to these two types of sons. And notice how he's gracious to both of these sons here. Even the even the older son that's not is rejecting what the father's doing. The father doesn't get angry to him. He just says, son, you're always with me and all that's mine is yours right this you know and this is one of those odd odd things going on the pharisees are, are are doing the things that should be pleasing to god to a large extent right now jesus has already talked about some things that they're hip, that they're hypocritical about and he's going to continue to do that but the point is they're headed in the right direction but the core problem is their hearts are in the wrong place Right? Their motivations are in the wrong place. And so here, this, this parable highlights the fact that, listen, if I could say it this way, what Jesus is saying is, listen, I, I'm, not, I'm not offering anything to the sinners and the tax collectors that I'm not offering y'all. It's, it's all yours. All you got to do is come and get it. Right. But you don't have anything to do with it because <laughs> you think somehow this is unfair right this is this is not right Uh, jesus tells another series of parables about workers and their wages and and it's a parable where the people who started working at the beginning of the day gets the exact same wage as the people who just start an hour before ending time right and jesus says nobody has the right to complain about them getting the same wage because the master does as he pleases out of his graciousness right so the, the father is incredibly gracious to both of these groups and um, the one who gets to enjoy it is the son who comes in repentance, right? He's come to himself. He's had to change his mind about everything, right? And, and let me just say that as he goes to the father, he's putting himself at risk. Is father going to take me back in or is he not, right? But I'll suggest this. He knows the kind of man his father is. And he knows, I know at least this, he'll take me back as a servant, but when he comes to the father, the father is far more extravagant than that. He restores him as a son, right? He, the, uh, he, he puts his best robe on him in the ring, uh, the shoes on his feet. They have the fattened calf killed, right? Um, and the whole point is that son was lost and now he's found. He was dead. Now he's alive, right? Such a great illustration of what Jesus is doing in his ministry. Those who are lost, he finds them and brings them in, right? Those who are dead, he's given them new life. And why would you be upset about that, right? Shouldn't we be excited about that? Your brothers and sisters that were lost, now they're found. Those who are dead, now they're alive. You know, uh, it, it, it's, man, sometimes the scribes and the Pharisees, I just don't. It's, it's really hard to get my mind around until you realize, uh, you know, the problem that, that people often love power and wealth, and that becomes such a snare and a distraction from the things that create reality, in fact, um, one of the commentators I was reading was talking about the Qumran community that was in existence at the time of Jesus, and this was a community that had pulled out into the Dead Sea area because they thought um, the the temple and the priesthood were defiled by the priesthood you know around the time of Jesus. And they believed that God's wrath was going to fall on Jerusalem again. And so they had pulled apart into the wilderness and they were more strict and more severe than even the Pharisees and the scribes were. And it was that community that produced the Dead Sea Scrolls. Y'all have probably heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered in the middle of the 20th century, which is a really fascinating story in and of itself. But that was a, they were a subgroup within Israel. Like the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and that group was more strict. And as they thought about God's impending wrath coming, they said uh, that there were that there were three reasons as they had looked at the Old Testament. That they were great scholars too. That they copied uh, they copied the scrolls of the Hebrew Scriptures, and through their copying, they were when those scrolls were discovered, um, it it revolutionized scholarship. Uh, completely undermined a lot of the liberal theories that we couldn't trust the manuscripts of the old testament and whatnot and the writings from the dead sea scrolls proved all that to be completely wrong because these guys were incredible scholars and they copied the manuscripts of the of the bible and uh, they wrote commentaries on what they mean and in one of their commentaries they said that there as they looked at the old testament there were there were three snares that always got Israel in trouble. Fornication, riches, and profaning the holiness of the temple. Fornication, riches, and profaning the temple, right? Uh, now in our time, there's, there's still three. And, and I'm, I'm speaking specifically about men here. So y'all bear with me what I'm about to say. Completely politically incorrect. you will know what I'm talking about. The Senate. But there are three snares that get... Every man in ministry, if they're, if, they're, if they're not incredibly careful, and it's money, women, and power. When you see people fall, it's usually for one of those three things, right? Money, women, and power. And now, let me just... In, in our times, we can just take the money out and we can replace that with sexual perversion, right? Because now it's no longer that. It's, it's whatever may go. And y'all can think of the stories that's proliferated in the last 20 years that you think, oh, my gosh, I don't even know what's going on anymore. But here it's it's the same type of thing. And it's really interesting. Jesus in one way or another is going to highlight this fact that that's the Pharisees' problem. They They love their wealth. They love their power more than they love the purpose of god for them and so these parables are going to highlight that in one way or another uh, now let me stop there any questions or comments on, on that one uh, y'all you know there's a lot there are a lot of teachings been done on the parable of the prodigal son and, and that's just a really brief overview uh, you've probably heard more things taught on that and there's a lot in there uh but that's the that's the basic idea that's going on in the flow of Luke. And so I would encourage you, uh if you're interested, you you can go read more uh works on that and and, and other people have you know literally picked apart every word of that thing because it's so uh significant. But uh I think you get the idea of of what's going on there in the big picture. Uh any questions or comments? Yeah, Todd. That last you're talking about is that the scribes Yes. Yeah, yeah, uh the uh in, in Luke he calls them the lawyers. But in um, uh, Matthew and Mark, they call them the scribes, uh, and they were the people who actually copied the scriptures and whatnot. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, Anybody else? Any questions or comments on that? Yeah, Jeff. As many times as we've read this parable before, I've I've always kind of felt for the other brother, too. Yeah, yeah. I would be sitting there saying that. That's kind of yeah. I mean, that is. I think the way Jesus wants us to take it that we that in this parable we all would be the other brother, right? And this is um, y'all. You know, we have all grown up hearing hearing this statement: life is not fair, that would be right? Right. Life is not fair. Let me let me say it this way, and, and y'all are going to get mad, y'all may be like, what? What do you mean? God's grace is not fair, right? If if justice Fairness, because that's what we're talking about, right? If justice, fairness was the foundation of God's grace, none of us would be here in this room today, right? Grace is given to people what they do not inherently deserve. And so that's what we all wrestle with, you know? That, that's, that's where we would be, as, you know, we would be the older brother. Wait a minute. And, and as, oh boy, and especially as Americans, he went and squandered that money? Oh, oh my, right, that's, as, that's, that's the tantamount sin, Misuse of money. Money is completely irrelevant to Jesus, right? To, to me, it's, it's one of the most countercultural things that he always talks about. Money is completely irrelevant for anything whatsoever. In fact, the very next parable is going to highlight how irrelevant money is. And it's, it, as it's, I, I, I say this next parable, it's almost incomprehensible to Americans because it's all about the misuse of wealth and how the guy is praised... <laughs> me. <laughs> yeah, i guess he did a good job of it so yeah we'll, we'll, we'll get into that in a second anybody else any questions on that comments i think it's helpful to think what god calls us to in hearing is terrible. yeah yeah he calls us to be like him yeah absolutely yeah dealing with people who are yeah not not yeah. walking in the way they should is compassion. And it's, yes, yeah, and it's his mercy. And longing, looking for them to return, waiting. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, this is, this is simply amplifying uh, what he had taught in chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Plain, right? Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful, right? All these parables illustrate that in one way or another, you know, and that mercy uh, implies his compassion and his love and his grace, you know, and all those things. It, yeah, it's, it's absolutely Uh, the case and you know i think even we struggle in america with you know the types of people that jesus would call today you know it's the down and outs it's the poor it's the you know people that we don't want to hang out with uh i mean that's that's a real wake-up call you know um all right y'all chapter 16 i have been dreading chapter 16 (laughs) ever since we started luke and i I, I, y'all remember last week I think that one of the very last things I said in class is y'all be praying. I have no idea what's going on in chapter 16. And in reading and studying this week, I think I may have made a little bit of breakthrough on it uh, and saw some things that I thought, oh, my gosh, how could I not have seen that before? Now I don't know if what I'm about to tell you is is exactly what's going on, but maybe we can get somewhere with it. So let's just get into this thing. Uh I guarantee you go pick any commentary off your shelf that you have on Luke, you turn it to sixteen one and the first or second sentence is going to be This is one of the most befuddling parables that Jesus tells. Everybody starts with that, uh, and almost everybody ends with i 'm not sure exactly what 's going on here, but this is my best shot right <laughs> so um, so look at look at look at what he says here. Uh, And this is a wild one. Man alive. Jesus is the master teacher. Verse 16. Now he also said to his disciples, right? So here we go. Now he, uh, uh, he's, he's been addressing the crowds and the disciples. And so this one is pointed directly at the disciples. This is a little bit deeper teaching. Uh, and this is, this is the story. There was a rich man who had a manager or a steward. And charges were brought against him, brought against the steward, that this man was wasting his possessions. That word wasting is the exact same word that was used of the younger son in 1513, that he took his father's possessions and went to a far country and squandered them. Right. It's the exact same word. So clearly Jesus wants us to tie these ideas together here. Right. so this steward is squandering his master's possessions. And I, I think the idea is this guy is incompetent. right? So charges are brought against him. Verse 2, now he called him, so the master calls him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be my manager. So he's fired on the spot and turn over all your accounts. I want to see what you're doing. Right? Verse 3, the manager said to himself, so <laughs> it's one of my favorite statements in Jesus' parables. The manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. <laughs> right? oh, man, at least he knows what's really going on there. right? Verse four. And here's the critical statement. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So this is the point. right? Now, now understand this. So what this manager realizes is, okay, I'm fired. I'm out. So i got to figure out what's coming next. Well, whatever I do next, notice who he's doing it for. He's doing it for himself so that when he goes out to look for a job, He'll have a resume that people will welcome them into his houses. And that's, of course, what a steward is. That's where you had a wealthy family and they would bring a steward in and that steward would be over some aspect of the wealthy family's possessions. Now, this this is probably a a household steward. He's over everything. Right. So a, a fairly high up guy. Um, and so he 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 comes in, and he says, "Verse four, I've decided what what I'll do, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses." Verse five. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, "How much do you owe my master?" And he said, "A hundred measures of oil." Uh, now, what you don't realize is that is an ex- that is huge amount of oil, like almost eight hundred gallons or so. Like some people have calculated out. Uh, this would be like two or three years uh, worth of, of oil on this. So, you know, incre- hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, in, the, in the first century. So he says to him, take your bill, sit down and quickly write 50. Yeah, to cut it in half. Right. So write half of what you got there. Right. Now, notice who he's having to write the bill down. Right. He's having the person that owes the money. So now they're complicit in the, in the uh, whatever's going on here, on the trickery, right? Because, you know, the whole point is when I get out of here, right, and I get in trouble, it's going to be, well, where'd that bill come from? Well, he's the one that wrote the bill, right? <laughs> oh, man, a lot. Uh, verse 7 Now he said to another, How much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. Um, he said to him, look, take your bill and write 80. So notice he doesn't cut this one in half. He cuts it down by 25%. But even, again, that measure is hundreds of thousands of dollars. So we're not talking about 20, 30 dollars here. We're talking about huge uh, bills that he's cutting down and whatnot. Now, here comes the twist. This, this is the one that always used to get me. Verse 8, now the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness what now, 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 now hang on just a minute, right now this is and this is what trips us up in this parable, and this is why I could never figure out what was going on in all of Jesus' parables, we expect the master to be who him or God, right, uh in one way or another, and then we expect the servants to be who what the disciples, so this parable, if we read it that way w- w- wait a minute, Jesus wants us to be dishonest. <laughs> And God is pleased when we're dishonest. But, but the way Jesus interprets it is the critical thing. Uh, this is what you call a, a parable of reversal, where, where the conclusion is exactly contrary to what you would expect. And, and you see it in the master's response. Now, let me ask you this. If you had a servant and he had just cut down over half of your income that's coming into your family, would you go to him and say, oh, I gotta give you credit. That was and, and by the way, the word that's used for shrewd here in other parables, Jesus uses the same word for wise. Right? Wisdom and shrewdness and astuteness, that's all from the same word group in the scriptures, right? The serpent in the garden, he was the wisest of all the creatures that the Lord God had made. And the idea there is astute, right? Crafty, all those kind of ideas. Uh, wisdom used for wickedness. <laughs> And there is a wisdom that's used in wickedness, right? It becomes shrewdness. And so here, uh, the master praises him for it. But if it had been us, would we have done that? Or we'd be like, what, is, what are you doing here, right? Instead, no, it's a complete reversal. He praises him for his shrewdness. And then, and then this is what gives us the insight. For the sons of this world are more shrewd, or I, th- I, th- I think it would be better to read it this way. For the sons of this world are more wise in dealing with their own generation rather than the sons of light. This is the point of the parable. This, this parable has nothing to do with the kingdom whatsoever. This, the master is not God and the servants are not uh, his disciples. Right? Jesus is telling this parable to illustrate the point that even the people of this world are wiser in the way they use their money than the sons of the kingdom. Because they use it it in shrewd ways. And this is the point. That servant has just taken that that money that didn't even belong to him to guarantee that whatever comes next, there's going to be a place for him. Right? That even though this one master is firing him, when he goes out, he's going to be able to find another household to go into. And it's probably going to be one of these guys that he just... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> relieved a hundred thousand dollars in debt to right um and that's the way the world works you know I, I, I to me that the insight on this parable is so incredible in that in human nature one of the things that we see across history is that people who hold and by the way i have an equation that can prove this uh, a, a mathematic equation and, and it's simply this the people who who hold the highest levels of power and authority, are usually the most incompetent to be there, right? The people that make the most money in a company, right, in our day, are the ones who are most incompetent in the actual running of the company. They're there for other reasons, right? And so here, this is who this manager is. But he ultimately knows how to get things done, right? And so he's going to be welcomed in. And that's the idea that Jesus gives here. Uh, that the sons of this world and and see you can see that right there he's not talking about disciples he's not talking about your relationship with god he has given this parable of contrast because of what he's about to say so look look at his conclusion now this is where he makes a point for the disciples verse 9 so i tell you make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth (laughs) there it is Uh, Unrighteous mammon is the word there from the King James. Y'all all all probably grew up hearing that, right? Mammon. Uh, It's an Aramaic word that just means wealth. uh, Unrighteous wealth. So that when it fails you, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. What? Now that seems to come out of nowhere, doesn't it? And, And again, this is one of these things Luke does. Luke has Jesus say these things that has an inherent question in it. And here the inherent question is, what are you talking about? So that when money fails, uh, who are they? Who's the they that's going to welcome us into eternal dwellings, right? And then why does he tie that into eternal dwellings, right? Use your wealth in a way that when you run out of money, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. And and, and let let me go ahead and, um, well, let me go ahead and give you the punch uh, if, you, if you look over to chapter, uh, if you look at the next thing that's going to happen, he's going to talk about faithfulness. He's going to have a run in with the scribes and the Pharisees. And then he's going to tell the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Right? And, and y'all know how that parable is going to go. There's a rich man, he's got more money than he can do with. Outside of his door is the poor man Lazarus. They both die, the rich man goes to hell. Uh, Lazarus is taken to Abraham's bosom, the side of Abraham. Y'all remember this? And the whole point of that parable is that rich man should have used his money to take care of Lazarus, right? That's the point of this parable that Jesus is saying, right? And so just as well, uh, uh, Lazarus was welcomed into his eternal dwellings by Abraham. That's the idea there, that the righteous who have gone before us that if we use our money in a shrewd way, right, to help others, right? And as Jesus says, to make friends for yourselves, <laughs> that's really interesting, right? To to, to use our monies in a way that extravagantly help others and make friends for ourselves, then even when the money runs out, you're still going to be welcomed into eternal dwellings. By the righteous who have done that beforehand, and he's, he's going to give several more illustrations of that, right? And y'all remember, he's uh, let me just let me just take you back a little bit. This is all this is all part of those um, of these reversal sayings that uh, Jesus has been talking about. In fact, let me let me do this. Uh, go all the way back to Luke chapter one. I want to show you something that started very early. Yeah, we're going to go back to Luke chapter one, and we're not going to go through every chapter from chapter one, but uh, look back to chapter one. And uh, I, I, I want to sh- show you something that we started out with um, back in Luke chapter 1, because this whole section uh, has, to do, has to do with this idea of reversal, fortunes being reversed and whatnot. Uh, chapter 1 in Mary's great hymn that's, that's been traditionally called the Magnificat. If you look down in chapter 1 verse 50, uh, Mary says, and here she's praising God, And talking about Father God, she says, uh, verse 50, His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Verse 51, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. See that? Reversal. Those who are proud and powerful, God's going to bring down. Those who are humble, He's going to elevate. Uh, verse 53 he has filled the hungry with good things but the wealthy he has sent away empty <gasps> Ooh, whoa wait a minute jesus is going to tell parables about that right rich man and lazarus one of the key ones people who are thinking they're well off now god's going to send them away hungry but those who are hungry he's going to fill with good things so there you begin that idea of reversal and then as jesus begins to teach you you know you jump forward to his teaching that begins in uh, chapter 6 primarily and you have uh, in his sermon on the plain in chapter 6 20 through 24 you have the blessed right blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of god but then verse 24 but woe to you who are rich for you've already received your consolation oh man right the poor are going to be made rich the rich going to be made poor when the kingdom comes, right? That's the idea there. Uh, You you go on forward and uh, you get the the Pharisees, the uh, disciples uh, squabbling about different things, which one is greater, um, so forth and so on. Then Jesus says to them, uh, let's see, where is it? Well, I mean, you can read through here and these things are all over the place. um, Where Jesus will say, there are many who are first, who who are going to be last and many who are last are going to be first. Um, he talks about whoever doesn't gather with him is going to scatter. Um, and so you have all these teachings on reversal that Jesus lays out here. The, the low are going to be brought up, the high are going to be brought down. And so this, these parables that he tells now um, are simply illustrating that. Chapter 13, verse 30 is one of the statements. Behold, some of the last will be first and some who are first will be last. Um, so, so all of these parables are talking about these issues of reversal. And so one of the things that Jesus is preparing the disciples for is everything that this world values is really of no value to the kingdom. Power, wealth, money. So you might as well use it in a way that's going to have some type of eternal consequence for you. And that's what he gets back to in chapter 16, verse 10. Let's uh, pick up right there and let's let's tie that together. And I'll see if y'all got any questions or comments. Uh, chapter 16, verse 10 through 13. He says, uh, now one who is faithful in very little is also f- uh, faithful in much. And one who is disobed- dishonest in very little is also dishonest-, dishonest in much. If you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, well, then who will entrust you with true riches? Wow. Boy, howdy. Man, Je- ooh, Lord. Uh, everybody always gets this idea that Jesus is just, you know, love and flowers and <laughs> let's hang out and be hippies and, you know, take it easy and whatever. And you read Jesus' teaching and he is rough, you know. Um, there is a uh, there is a website, and I think it's still up. It's called uh, Global Rich List, com. Do, do you know what this uh, is? you go in you go in and you put in your yearly salary right how much you make a year and it tells you what percentile you're in in the whole world in terms of wealth and riches every american that puts any money in that whatsoever is in the top half a percent of the people in the world right we have been entrusted with more than any generation that's ever come before us in terms of the things that are available to us. You know, unbelievable. And I'm telling you what, these words of Jesus sting here. Um, I, uh, you know, and to, to quote another great 20th century uh, theologian, Evil Knievel, if you remember him. <laughs> one time Evil Knievel was asked, why, why, why are you so extravagant with what he goes? In the 70s, you know, when he was jumping sharks and breaking every bone in his body, he had millions upon millions of dollars. I don't know if y'all remember, when I was a kid, they used to have the specials on Thursday night, you know, Wide Wide World of Sports and this week Evil Knievel's going to jump something, you know, on a motorcycle or a rocket ship or whatever, and we're all tuning in. You know it there's about a 2-hour build up to 5 minutes of nothing. You know what I mean? <laughs> And every week, like every other time he would wreck and whatever. But he made all kind of money doing it. Literally broke every bone in his body. And he was on a talk show one time, and the um, interviewer asked him, he said, Evil, why are you so extravagant, you know, buying fur coats and canes with diamonds on the top and everything? And Evil said, he said, it's real simple. You can't buy your way into heaven, and you can't spend it in hell, so you better enjoy it now, all right? (laughs) Oh, gosh, now, I don't, I don't know if that's being faithful, but he has a point there, right? Uh, you better use your money while you can, uh, is what Jesus is saying here. But, but, but the important thing is, right, uh, you want to be faithful in the way you use it. And if we're not faithful with these little things that we have, well, then who's going to really entrust us with true riches, you know? One of the, one of the things that Jesus is always orienting us towards in all of his teaching in one way or another is that... Um, this life that we're going through now is just the training ground. It is simply the training ground for the kingdom and for eternity. And one of the things that I often see happening, even among Christians, is something that gets embedded in the worldview that we would never say this consciously, but, but we tend to let it control our thinking. And that is, this life is all we've got, right? Right? And so, if it doesn't happen now, it's not going to happen. that's just not true. Jesus is always preparing us for the kingdom is coming and you don't want to miss out on it. It's a great banquet. It's a great celebration. And everything you're going now, it's just training you for that. And right now, what me and the Father are trying to do, we're trying to train you all to be faithful. But if you can't be faithful with this stuff made out of metal, printed on paper, then how can we trust you all with the stuff that really matters? Right? Ooh, Lord, Jesus, hang on now. That hurts. Why, 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 why you will say it like that? It doesn't hurt our feelings over here, right? Uh, verse 12, he says, If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Right? A steward, uh, a manager, as it says here, that's not somebody who has their own wealth. That's somebody who has somebody else's wealth. Paul, uh, in a couple of places, talks about himself as a steward of the mysteries of the word of God. Right, Paul was somebody who had been entrusted with the rich teachings of the kingdom, if I could say it that way. And he said, all that's required is that one be found faithful. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Verse 13, no servant can to- serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth, God and money, right? Now, we've heard that a thousand times, right? Uh, 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 another great 20th century theologian, um, Bob Dylan, said you got to serve somebody, right? Um, that's what Jesus is saying here. And you can't serve two people. Right? You can't have two masters. You're going to be conflicted. And so it makes a big deal about the money. Now, notice immediately what happens here. Um, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, <laughs> lovers of wealth, they heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And, and, and part of the reason for their ridicule, you all know we looked at this when we did the study on the uh, wisdom literature. Um, you know, there was this common theology that people had become wealthy because they had done something that had accrued God's favor and he was blessing them because they were favorable to him. And what Jesus is doing again, one of the great reversals, that has nothing to do with anything right God is not blessing people, and that 's what 's giving them their wealth. You might have gotten it like this unjust steward over here right there 's all kinds of ways of getting wealth, right greedy uh, being consumed by it and that 's what the Pharisees are right and and, it's, and you know it's, and this is one of those. This is one of those things that even comes forward into our day with the health and wealth gospel. You know, that if you're doing well and you got money, it's clear that God's blessing you. Right. And we see those guys on TV all the time. That's the message of Antichrist. Right. And all the preachers that preach it, every one of them, they are standing opposed to Jesus. And we could name them by name. Right. Um, I'm not going to do that here because I always get in trouble when I call people by name and label them with Antichrist. But you all know who I'm talking about. That's totally contrary to Jesus' teaching, right? Um, so th- so they ridicule him. And verse 15, he says, Now he said to them, uh, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God, right? Uh, and the, the word abomination there means completely unacceptable, absolutely and utterly unacceptable, right? Um, and then another seemingly weird statement. He says, now the law and the prophets were until John, and since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. Now that's a very difficult statement. Um, the, the the words that Jesus used there, uh, I think in this context may be better translated with the kingdom of God is preached uh, and everyone is strongly urged to enter into it. Right? So in other words, Jesus is constantly telling people to seek the kingdom, uh, get into the kingdom. right? Um, uh, and that may be what's going on there. Or it may be the idea, this is another option, that as Jesus uh, is preaching the kingdom, everybody's trying to force their own way into it. In other words... They're not listening to what Jesus is saying about getting into the kingdom. They're trying to come up with their own rules and standards and force their way into it. you follow what I'm saying? Uh, so one of those two things is going on, and scholars are divided over which way to take it. Uh, and, and then he says this, again, a seemingly interesting and befuddling series of, of statements. Verse 17, he says, "...but it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void." For everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Huh? And then they get the parable of rich man and Lazarus. Again, this is one of those places where I'm just like, wait, what? How does all that fit together? And now I think what's going on here is, um, again, the key is, Jesus says, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Right? And then he goes on to say that, you know, the law and the prophets were till John, but now the kingdom is being preached. Uh, but it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one line, one little dot, one dot above the eye of the law to become void. Right? And so I, th- I think what this whole thing is meant to illustrate, it's kind of a, a, a summary passage. And that is what Jesus is teaching is actually just an expansion of the reality of what Moses had taught in the Torah, properly interpreted, right? And later Jesus is going to say, you know, the things I'm teaching are the things that Moses has already taught you. In fact, we have that in the parable of uh, the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, At the end, if you remember the end of that parable, the rich man who's in hell in torment says, hey, man, let me just send a messenger back and tell my brothers that y'all don't want to get down here. And you remember Abraham says to him, listen, they have Moses in the law. If, if they don't listen to him, they're not even going to listen if somebody comes back from the dead. Right. Which is, ooh, Lord, you know where Jesus is headed with that. Right. I mean, uh, so so very powerful statement. And so what Jesus, I think, is doing here in this little section is he is highlighting the hypocrisy of the Pharisees in that their interpretation and their application of God's law is a complete abomination to him completely unacceptable not that they're not teaching the law but but their interpretation of it you, you follow what i'm saying because uh, uh and the example that he gives is on the issue of divorce and remarriage and notice jesus interpretation of it here he's interpreting what moses had taught about divorce uh, and, and this is a little bit different in the other gospels at, at one point jesus is teaching on the same thing and he says you know uh there's no uh, there's no valid reason for a divorce except for the cause of uh, unfaithfulness, sexual immorality of some level. Here he doesn't even give that. He just says, right, if you divorce and remarry, that's contrary to the law, is essentially what he's saying here. And I think the reason that, that he gives that as an example is that, is that was one of the big dividing issues in the different schools of thought and rabbinical teaching. There was, there was a school... Uh, a school by a rabbi named Shammai at the time, around the time of Jesus, and another school by the uh, with a rabbi named, by the name of Hillel, and Hillel was one of the more liberal of the Pharisees, and Shammai taught a more strict interpretation. And on the issue of divorce and remarriage, he taught that the only way a man could get a divorce from his wife or a wife from a husband was through sexual immorality. Hillel said, "You can divorce your wife if you don't like the way she's cooking supper." Literally. Literally, any reason you can think of, and and, and what Jesus is saying here is, y'all's interpretations make a complete mockery of the law. Right? It is a complete abomination, completely unacceptable to the Lord. Right? And so then he gives this one little example, which would, which is the way rabbis would do things, and then he ties that into the parable or the story of the rich man and Lazarus, which will, which we'll get more into next week. But here, you know, the the thing that's going on, and if I could just say this, you know, you see this running all through uh, the story of Jesus. You see this all running through Scripture is that there there are three sources of knowledge and information that are always competing for dominance. And this is the way I would order them. The, The first level is revelation from God, right? When we read the Bible... I believe that it's true and that it's right and it's accurate and it tells us truth and there is nothing that has higher authority than this on planet earth, right? This is it. For me, this is ultimate authority. If it conflicts with scripture, it's not true and it's not just and it's not righteous, right? But there are other, there are other competing factors. The, uh, one of the big ones is tradition. Tradition can come in, right, and we can start writing our Bible uh, commentaries and our interpretations, and we build, and we build, and we build, and we build. And before long, it can be so far removed from Scripture that it doesn't even reflect what's actually in the text. Think about our traditional denominations, right? That's one of the ways we've gone completely afoul, uh, out in left field on some things. And there are these traditional denominational interpretations that are in direct conflict with the Scripture, what the Scripture actually says, right? So we need to be aware. That. that That's where the scribes and Pharisees are. And Jesus in the other Gospels, he says, you are letting the traditions of men override the Scriptures. And therefore, you're wrong, right? You're out of shape. Another really important uh, factor is culture. Culture can be a powerful voice that wants to define what's right and wrong and true and just. That's kind of where we are today. Uh, We have put, you know, in, in, in ancient cultures, they tend to put tradition above revelation kind of the final authority right but now in our culture uh, we've taken culture itself and put it as the final authority of over both tradition and revelation and and in our culture we've even wiped revelation off the map god ain't said nothing to nobody and y'all are crazy for thinking that that's the word of god right that's where our culture is and that's why it's evaporating (laughs) Mm-hmm. Minute by minute, right In, into deeper and deeper levels of insanity, yeah. right unsanity, if I could say it that way. And so here, what what, what Jesus is wrestling against is not against the teachings of, of Moses of the Torah, but the Pharisees' interpretation of it. And he's already you know really lit him up for that. He really tied into him by saying, y'all, you know, you say you're teachers of the law, but you, you're letting your traditions override what the law teaches. And y'all figure out ways to get out of taking care of your parents because you've tithed all your wealth to the temple or to something else. You know, if you go and you just look through the Gospels at the way Jesus addresses the scribes and the Pharisees, it's very clear that he's telling them, y'all's traditions have completely missed the point. So here, this is a summary statement because uh, from this point forward, things are going to get very, very heated between Jesus and the Pharisees. And, you know, we're we're going to get to the point where they're going to try to figure out how to kill him. And so this is just a summary point <clears throat> to show how all these things are escalating. And here what Jesus is, is basically saying is, uh, y'all, you Pharisees, you lovers of money, these things that you've justified yourself with, these are abominations before the Lord God completely unacceptable right and so that'll flavor some things that we start to get into even uh, next week as we go now y'all next week go ahead and read hey man we did pretty good we got to almost where i wanted to uh go ahead and read chapter uh, 17 rest of chapter 16 for next week and then on into chapter 17 uh i don't think we'll get into chapter 18 next week but uh y'all y'all go ahead and read that as well uh the more you read it the better off we all are All right, y'all, let me go ahead and pray for us and we will turn loose. And if if, if anybody else has any other questions, I'll be happy to talk with you after class. But let me go ahead and pray and we'll close out. Father, we we thank you again for your word. And just as we've seen today, there are things that are difficult to understand and and to get our minds around. And nevertheless, you've given us all these things so that we can know the truth. And be set free by that truth. And so, Father, uh, even in these things that we don't fully understand, we can still get to uh, the heart of what it is that you're revealing to us. And that is, you want us to be people as 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 your sons and daughters who are characterized by our extravagant and wasteful generosity, knowing that uh, in this life we've been blessed so that we can bless others. And so, Father, uh, day by day, we, we fight against greed and we fight against, uh, wanting to put ourselves first. And, and you know these struggles, uh, they're real to us. And we also know that you've given us your Holy Spirit and you've empowered us to do what we cannot, uh, innately do in and of our own strength and power. So we thank you for all these blessings and we pray that as we work through these, these powerful writings that Uh, Through the work of the Holy Spirit, you'll give us wisdom and insight so that we can know exactly how to, as Jesus says, not only hear the Word, but to also keep it. And so we ask all this for His awesome and powerful namesake. Amen.